Digital media and tech in Dubai is back for season two. And for our kickoff episode, we are thrilled to present one of the MENA region's most experienced digital executives, Youssef Tukan, widely respected as one of the most outspoken and visible evangelists for digital and social innovation in Dubai business. Launched in March of 2016, Dubai's top tech podcast focuses on bringing listeners informative conversations with local experts, exploring the latest trends in the digital media and tech scene in the burgeoning international capital that is Dubai. I'm your host, Spencer Stryker, digital media professor at the American University in Dubai. All episodes are recorded on location at AUD right here in the heart of Dubai's media city. In our exclusive conversation with Youssef, we trace the fascinating biography of his 20-year career, during which he has helped forge the face of modern digital Dubai. Beginning in 1996, when he had to drop out of UMass Amherst to help his family, Youssef broke into web design, a technology in its infancy at the time, shortly thereafter designing the original Emirates.com website, which is pretty cool. And for much of the next 20 years, he has repeated this pattern of being at the ground floor of so many nascent digital Dubai initiatives. At the turn of the century, he became the first digital employee for Ogilvy One and was there at the creative conception of Madinat Jumeirah. After a stint as account director at North 55, in 2005, Youssef began a 10-year path to the top of Flip Media, one of the leading digital marketing startups in the region at the time. Joining as employee number 20 or so, he would rise to become the CEO and oversee the company's expansion to around 180 employees, navigating the financial crisis of 2008 and eventually overseeing the successful acquisition of the company by Leo Burnett. After working as Chief Innovation Officer, yes, another cool title, for the new parent company, Leo Burnett Mina, Youssef took a strategic two-month vacation. Upon his return, he became entrepreneur and residence at Wamda Capital, a VC firm focused on growing regional tech startups. It was in that role that he got tapped to take over as VP of Marketing and Analytics for one of Wamda's key investments, the red-hot startup Kareem, often considered the most successful Mina startup to date, never one to sit still. He has since taken over as Group Vice President for Brand Marketing and Loyalty for the Jumeirah Group. Finally, Youssef lays out his interpretation of the Dubai vision, which he summarizes as the goal to become the best city in the world. Just to begin, mm. why don't we talk about your journey in terms of how you got to become the VP of Marketing at Kareem? I mean, going all the way back, you've been in Dubai for 20 years, right? So can we just go back to the beginning and talk about how you came to Dubai? Sure. Um, I've spent my whole, most, my whole adult career mm -hmm. um, here in Dubai working in the marketing space. Uh, at the time, I was, when I was 20, I was in college in 1996 at the University of Massachusetts, and I was nearing the end of my junior year. And I just felt like I wasn't, you know, I was a year away from graduation. I didn't even feel like I was ready, ready for the world. And interestingly, my father then called me and said, look, the family's fallen a little bit of hard times. We can't really afford this expensive American private college education. Would you mind coming home for a while? And my, my parents were here in Dubai at the time. 
And I said, yeah, why not? Like, I kind of was thinking about taking some time off anyway. So I left college for what I thought would be six months and okay. even left my winter coats in, you know, hanging with my friends in college. And I came home and you know, I started helping out with the family with what they needed. And I'm still here 20 years later. So um, to, just to let you know, my father lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I actually, so I'm very familiar with Amherst. Mm. And uh, that's a terrific school. Yes. So you were at UMass Amherst, you were studying communications, mm -hmm. and then you did not get to finish the degree because of that? No, I didn't. I came back here, and the first job I got was working at Citibank okay. um, in customer service. And you know, for anybody who's known me very long, you realize I'm not really bank material, as they would say. <laughs> and um, so I spent about six months there. And after about six months, it really didn't work out for me, and they fired me. Um, and then I found myself sitting at home with, with very little to do. But, mm -hmm. You know, one of the benefits of, of my sort of American school education that I had growing up was that they put a big emphasis on creativity, on multimedia, on creative writing. Right. So I'd done yearbook, I'd done newspapers, I was the school DJ. And so I had a very natural passion for technology. My father was a lifelong IBM employee when I was a kid growing up. IBM where though? In Kuwait and in Jordan. Okay. So, you know, this was 1996, and the internet was just really, you know, the browser had just come into play, right. and things were just starting to take shape. And right. I was sitting at home, unemployed, with nothing to do. And my father said, listen, like, you've got nothing to do now. You've got to find a way to contribute to the family. Why don't you learn how to make web pages? Okay. And I, well, web pages, what's that? <laughs> and, you know, using very rudimentary tools like Netscape Composer, hmm. I built my first small website. And working with my dad, we built a website for a Canadian immigration lawyer. And we did a barter deal with him where he did the legal paperwork for my family to apply for immigration to Canada. Mm. And we made the guy a website. Mm. And the amazing thing was we finished the website. And literally one and a half days later, he'd received an inquiry on his website that turned into a sale. Wow. And it really gave me a bit of a taste of the blood, you know, yeah. in terms of, wow, like this stuff actually works. And so from 96 until 99, by day I was doing a lot of just freelance stuff related to technology. So I was installing stereos in rich people's houses. I was doing network support and going to offices and you know, deleting viruses and you know, fixing printers. And I was making websites at the same time. And my first proper job in that space was in 1999. I went to work for an agency called APS, quite an old agency. It was very iconic at the time. And I started working for them as their website marketing executive. And it was amazing because this is 1999. You were was, very young to be an executive. I was very young. I was 24. Right. And it was one of those funny things, but it was really the start of websites and all of that. And right. so, you know, I'm just so lucky in that, you know, being in Dubai, you get to be at the beginning of everything. So, I mean, I did the website for Emirates.com, for example. No kidding. You're I did Emirates. Well, there was a, one previously, but it didn't really count. So this is the first proper Emirates website. I wonder if we can pull those up on, like, the way back. You might do, yeah. You know, I did Emirates.com, I did Donata.com, I did the Emirates Group. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. You know, it was really quite, quite incredible. I mean, that's one of the, always been one of my favorite things about my job is the fact that I've worked on so many iconic brands mm. and projects when they didn't even exist. And mm. so from 99 to 2000, I worked at, at APS. It was a good agency, but small agency. And, right. I, you know, when I reached my elastic limit in terms of what I could achieve at a small agency, I then ran into a childhood friend who was working at Ogilvy One. And they had won the Skywards business to launch Emirates Loyalty Program. And they were ramping up quite quickly. And they knew that there was a gap in their skill set for digital. And so they said, would you like to come over? Of course, working for such an iconic agency was amazing. So from 2000 to 2004, I worked at Ogilvy. And you know, David Ogilvy, when he founded his agency, said he wanted, to be, he wanted it to be the teaching hospital mm -hmm. of advertising. And it really was. I mean, the, the education I got, you know, the, the mm -hmm. mentorship I got, I mean, to this day, 
my managing director there, still a dear friend, and still I still consider a mentor. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge opportunity for me to really learn, you know, the kind of the craft of advertising, how it works, how you do things, how you manage people as well. And so, and, and so you were the first digital employee. Of yes. Ogilvy? Yes. Okay. I was. Yeah. And that so happens a lot to me. Okay. But this is the Ogilvy office in Dubai. It was Ogilvy One, which right. was their loyalty and one-to-one -one communications okay. specialist arm, uh, which kind of had the digital remit within it as well. Mm -hmm. And again, it was great. I worked on Jumeirah, for example. I did all these websites for all these really iconic mm -hmm. hotel brands, you know, Emirates Academy of Hospitality Management. And I remember, for example, getting called once to Burj Al Arab in 2001. I said, come to Burj Al Arab, we have a meeting. I said, okay, I went to Burj Al Arab, went upstairs into a boardroom that was overlooking the site of what is now Medina Jumeirah. Mm -hmm. And they just knocked down the Chicago Beach Village, mm -hmm. the, the residential development that was there and had a scale model on the table of Medina Jumeirah. And they pointed at it and they said, Yusuf, we're going to build that there. I kind of pointed <laughs> down at the rubble and said, and it's going to be ready in two years. And so we need to get ready for this event. We need, you know, flyers, brochures, a website, a logo, etc. Mm. And, you know, sure enough, two years later, I'm there, I'm having dinner, looking back up at Burj Al Arab where it all began. Mm. So it's always amazing the fact that, you know, I've always, I always get in on the ground floor when it comes to these things. So I did about four years at Ogilvy, learned a lot. But, um, but realized I needed a change. Um, working for a very big corporate agency has its limitations, and mm -hmm. I felt that I'd gone as far as I could there. And so, did, Where did you kind of max out in terms of your... I was an account director. Okay. And I realized I could stay on and kind of have bigger roles, but the more senior roles were a lot more stressful, a lot more demanding, and, right. and I was just tired. Mm -hmm. And so I went and joined a great um, design agency called North 55 that's owned by two good friends of mine, Mike and Craig. Mm -hmm. And I worked with them for a year, and it was great because... I got to take everything I learned in big agency and apply it to the small kind of four-year-old up-and-coming startup agency. Right. So I was able to bring a lot of that experience. But at the same time, because it's such a small agency, I was very close to the work. Um, you know, I would take a brief myself. I would go back. I would sit with the creatives. I'd become part of the creative process. Mm -hmm. And again, worked on some amazing iconic brands like Jumeirah Golf Estates, for example, a lot of the early Nahil developments as well. Mm -hmm. And I did a year there. And it really was one of the best years of my life in terms of my career. It was great fun, great work, great people. But again, I realized after a year there that as a digital person, you need a lot of support. You need a big agency around you with a lot of specialist skills, which small agencies can't provide. And I started having conversations with the founders of Flip, who'd been up and running for about a year then, Flip Media. Okay. And we'd become friends through the industry. And we wound up having a good conversation. And then once one of the co-founders said to me, you know, I wish I could get you and this guy and this guy and this guy and just all come work with us at Flip and we would just build like this premier league of agency people. And, and at that time, Flip was how big? Uh, it was about 20 people at okay. the time. And they had been around for how long? A year. Okay. And then, okay. And so I joined them as an account director uh, and brought, again, the big agency experience to them. And it was wonderful. I mean, you know, it was when really digital marketing was really starting to properly take off. I mean, okay. this is 2005. Right. You know, they just won the Amar business, and Amar was starting to take off. And, you know, all of Dubai was really riding a wave, you know, at that time. Okay. And so I joined them, and it was just incredible. Um, you know, from 2005 to 2008, we went from 20 people to 180 people. What, you were employee number... Uh, probably number 20. 20. And it was really quite amazing to kind of be a part of that growth. You know, we had Amar, we had Nakhil, we did all the websites for Jabal Ali Free Zone, we did Mubadala. Uh, Dubai Land, you know, pretty much any iconic brand, Dubai Multi-Commodity Center. It was, wow. It's amazing to this day. I remember sitting once at the Address Hotel in downtown, okay. 
And I said, I did the website for literally everything I can see around me right now. Every building, every hotel, the Dubai Mall, the massive development, everything I had had a part, I, I'd been a part of. Yeah, I'm getting the impression that you've kind of seen modern Dubai grow. Yes. Because, I mean, you came here in 96, you began building websites then. And yes. By the time you get to this point in your career at Flip Media, you've been here for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, but over the last 20 years, you've more or less seen Dubai kind of expand and grow. Yeah, yeah. I've been really lucky. You know, I've, cool. I've seen it all. And, you know, I mean, you know, like fun facts, I was part of the initial team that put together the concept and the strategy for Dubai Media City. Mm. My dad was an IT consultant um, to His Highness Sheikh Mohammed between 96 to 98, mm. or 97 to 98. And the original vision was, Sheikh Mohammed started with the vision that, okay, we've got this Dubai shopping festival, lots of people <coughs> come to it. Why don't we knock down the site of the current trade center apartments? Let's knock them down. Let's build a mall there. And we're going to put a TV station called the Spirit of Dubai in the center of that mall that would become a huge PR engine to broadcast and promote Dubai. Mm. And in the back of that building, where the, where the current, there's a huge hole in the, par in the parking lot behind the trade center today, that was going to be the original site for Dubai Media City. Because he said, look, there's all these media and production companies that are based in Lebanon. Why don't we try to encourage them to come here to Dubai and set up? Okay. And so the original vision was that they were going to build a mall at the Trade Center and then build a media-free zone in the back of the Trade Center area. And my father obviously become really quite enamored with the internet and e-commerce and e-business. Mm -hmm. And so his job was actually to help scope the IT infrastructure around Dubai Media City. But he kind of went off-piste a little bit when he made his presentation to Sheikh Mohammed to say, hey, there's this huge untapped opportunity called the internet we need to make sure that Media City is able to cater to all the new internet businesses of the future. Okay. Is this going to be Internet City? And it's amazing, yeah. And I remember seeing, seeing His Highness. He was watching these presentations and he was sort of leaning back in his chair. And as soon as my dad started to talk about this, he literally just sat forward like this and just put his hands on his elbows, his elbows on his arms, and was just sitting there staring like with his mouth open like, wow, this is an amazing idea. <laughs> and sure enough, they then announced Dubai Media City and Dubai Internet City. Cool. So I can't personally take all the credit for Internet City, <laughs> but I'd like to think that, you know, I had my father and I had a small part to play in, cool. in the vision for this thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's been something I've always been so proud of in this country is these wonderful, iconic brands that I've gotten to work on and, and be a part of and be part of their success in my own very, very small way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, with Flip, it was incredible, you know, because we went from a company that grew from... You know, I mean, at one point, you know, we were, you know, 180 people. We were literally dictating the terms of the market. We were working on every brand you could imagine. It you was guys were the number one then marketing, digital marketing firm. Oh, by far. Okay. Oh, by far. We were bigger, better, more professional than anything out there. Okay. And, you know, we were very proud of what we did and yeah. still are very proud of what we've achieved at Flip. And then the bottom fell out. You know, we got to the end of 2008 and you had the global financial crisis. And, of course, Dubai and real estate in Dubai was hit particularly hard. And we saw... 70% of our business disappear in the course of about a week. That must have been it was hard to take. It was incredible when you go from being an incredibly profitable business mm -hmm. to realizing you were about to go out of business, like overnight. You know, I mean, we had Amar, we had Nakhir, and they both made it very clear that there was no more money on the way, let alone the fact that, you know, some of these, these, these clients owed us millions, mm -hmm. and, you know, in terms of money that was owed to us, money that we needed to pay salaries, to pay rent. And we were really good about it. We had no illusions. We said, this is going to be terrible. Like, this is not, this is going to be terrible, and people don't understand how terrible this is going to be. So we really got to do something about this. And we had to make the very hard decision that day to say, we need to immediately fire 12 people. 
right now we have to get rid of 12 people. If we want to survive, 12 people have to go today. And we said, okay, we're going to get rid of X and X and X. And I said, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. And I had to sit down and fire three good people in an afternoon. Good people who were my friends who I worked with every day. Mm. And I just, but I had no hesitation in doing that. As, as much as it hurt to do it to those people who I considered friends, mm -hmm. you know, we had to do what we needed to do to save that company. And we had to really kind of slash costs and do everything. Well, one, one funny anecdote was we got to the time of our Christmas party in December 2005. And at the previous year, of course, we were riding high and, you know, the sky was the limit. Mm -hmm. And so we took out the entire jam base bar, <coughs> bar and club venue in Medina Jumeirah, which is now Friul. And you know, it was 180 people, we had a live band, we had a sit-down dinner, we had unlimited drinks all night. I mean, the, the event probably cost us 50 or 60,000 dirhams. This was the previous year. The previous okay. year. <laughs> and of course, in 2005, you know, there's obviously no way we're going to do anything like this. And so we decided, let's just have a small party in the office. And so we're all sitting there, and we'd gone from, you know, a banquet in a five-star hotel the previous year to just kind of standing around our conference room eating like drinking warm beer and eating bagels that we got from, from from the shop next door and one of our colleague goes I know why don't we watch the video from last year that'll be fun <laughs> and suddenly had all of us standing there with our warm beers and our half-eaten bagels looking how awesome our life used to be and how awful it was now um, but you know but it's amazing like where you know we, we just got so lucky you know because you know, even though Dubai was hitting a, a bump, mm. Abu Dhabi was on the rise. Mm. And we, got, we were very lucky in two ways. One is that we had a contract with Emirates Airline to manage their website. And so we had 35 employees in Flip Dubai on retainer managing Emirates. So at least we knew there was one check we could guarantee every month would come in right. to cover our costs, to cover our cash flow, to make sure our staff got paid. And so we kind of knew we were going to be okay from a day-to-day -day perspective, but we needed more business. And we got very lucky where we connected with 2454, mm -hmm. the media free zone that was just starting up in Abu Dhabi. And we were able to secure quite a large engagement with them. And then obviously pick up a lot more work with Mubadala, with Abu Dhabi Ports, and a lot of the other big, iconic Abu Dhabi brands that were up and coming at the time. So it really did save our skin, because, as they say. In other words, say. because Abu Dhabi did not get hit so hard. No. Assuming, and then <clears throat> you were able to pick up the business from there, basically yeah. to save Flip Media. Yeah, and Abu Dhabi at the time was really doubling down in terms of really planning for their future as a city mm. and saying we need to invest more in, in other alternative sources of income besides oil. And they identified media as being a big part of okay. what they could do. So they invested very heavily in terms of building up 2454 and their capabilities there, as well as a lot of the other initiatives that were coming through, be it cultural projects, tourism projects, and so on. And so, you know, we continued to grow and, you know, went from strength to strength. And we, as a business, we continued to be quite successful. But at some point, you became the CEO. Yes, I was, became the CEO in 2008, um, not long before the financial crisis, actually. Right. And so what was that like, that transition, and, and how and why were you tapped to be the CEO? Well, it was an interesting one because, um, you know, it's one of those things where if, if you work for a business, especially a small business, the best way to get promoted to the next job above you is to do it. Okay. Um, and I was very lucky in that I had two co-founders who really saw that I had the potential to do this. I think if you looked at me and the two co-founders, we had a very good complementary set of skills. Um, Martin was very good at finance and admin and the legal aspects, but he was very German. So not much of a people person, um, but a very, very smart businessman. And who was the CEO at that time? Um, Martin was. Okay. And then you had Dinesh, the other co-founder, who who I always kind of said was very much the Steve Jobs of, of Flip. He was a real visionary in terms of technology, in terms of design, in terms of creativity. 
And again, but you know, really just didn't want to have to handle the customers and deal with the people. He just wanted to kind of get on with doing that thing that he really liked. Whereas I've always been, I love people, I love selling, I love, you know, I love every aspect of, of my job. And right. so I, I was a much more natural fit to be the CEO, to let them take a bit of a step back and focus on what it was they actually enjoyed doing most in the business. Mm -hmm. And it was a great honor, you know, to, mm -hmm. to, to have that role. You know, I mean, God, I was, how old was I? I was 33, you know, it was pretty, CEO of, pretty, uh, pretty, 32, yeah, 32. That's very cool. Which was pretty cool. I mean, obviously such an iconic business and yeah. one that I was so proud of and, you know, had a small share in and it was incredible. I know we continued to go from strength to strength and we kind of realized by about 2010, we'd actually tried to sell the business in 2008 mm -hmm. and, and we'd actually gotten quite far down the road to selling it, but then obviously when the financial crisis hit, those plans went out the window. So you were the CEO and then your first job at that time was to sell the company? No. Um, we were already going through that process. Okay at the time. And then when it didn't sell, then you became the CEO. I was already the CEO. So oh, okay. we started that process a little bit before I became, I think I became the CEO in April 2008. Okay. And we started the process of trying to sell the business a few months before that. Okay. And it had gone quite far, but then when the financial crisis hit, mm -hmm. you know, all, all, you know and, all bets were off. And then when that sale did not happen, the company went on for another five years. Yeah, we did. Um, we, we, we can, it, it still continues today. Okay. And so, um, so then in 2010, the market started to get an appetite for this again, for, for acquisitions. And we realized that a business, we'd, we'd reached a limit where, as an independent agency, we couldn't take this thing any further. Um, we didn't have the access, to, you know, when we started, when we'd started in 2004, we were something new in the market. There was nobody like us, where over time, you know, there was big global players who were coming into the market. Mm -hmm. There were small startups who were squeezing us from the bottom. And we realized that, you know, we'd taken this company as far as we could as independents and that we needed a larger network to come in to give us access to brands so we could grow, right. to give us access to knowledge so we could be better, so and give us access to people. Yes. Okay. So we started that process, and we spoke to everybody. I mean, every mm -hmm. possible advertising holding group in the world. And But the really interesting thing was Leo Burnett was the first conversation we'd had mm -hmm. before we started the process. And eventually, we settled on them as being the best partner for us. Uh, what we liked about Leo Burnett was the fact that the desire to acquire us was driven locally, not internationally. The, the Leo Burnett Dubai leadership saw the potential of Flip and wanted us to be a part of their organization. It wasn't a holding company in France or in the U.S. who said, oh, let's, let's go buy that digital agency and figure out what to do with them later. And we felt there was a great cultural fit as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, we went through all the negotiations in the process and eventually sold the agency in February of 2012. Mm -hmm. Got it. 12? You were the CEO yes. December yes. of 2013. Yes, so we sold the company in February of 2012, mm -hmm. um, and then I continued on as the CEO until the end of 2013 and kind of managed the transition into Leo Burnett. So Flip still remains an independent agency in terms of the branding, and it's still a separate entity. But it's a but subsidiary it's, it's, of, it's Leo of Leo Burnett, and it's part of the group, yes. Right. And that was quite an interesting process. I mean, going from running your own agency where you pretty much make up the rules as you go along. Sure to suddenly becoming part of a very large organization where you can't do that anymore. You don't have the luxury of choosing who you do and do not work with right. or what brands you do and do not you work with. You had worked with. for a big, industry, a big uh, <coughs> agency before, though. Yes, really? with, with Ogilvy, yes. You had that experience. Yeah. But now you were back in that sort of situation. Back, back in that environment, yeah. And it was very interesting. And, and you know, the earnout was an incredibly stressful time, you know, kind of going through the last few years of the acquisition, you know, and you worked very, very hard. And, you know, and I just, I got to the end of that, of that period when, you know, the earnout was almost over and I didn't have to stay much longer. And I, I reached out to the, the president of Leo Burnett Raja, who is, a, is still a good friend. And so I said to him, look, I said, I'm tired. Like, I can't, I've been, 
you know, I've been through so much the last few years in terms of building up this agency, going through the crisis, building it up again, going through the sale. I can't do this anymore. I can't run an agency anymore. Like, I've done it for eight years. And he very generously said, well, why don't you come over and take on a group role within Leo Burnett? You know, we want mm -hmm. to turn all of Leo Burnett into flip media. We want, you know, this, this large, you know, advertising group to become much more digitally and socially savvy. And so I came on um, in January of 2014 as the chief innovation officer for the group across the region. I mean, Which is, what, by the way, is a pretty cool title. It's a great title. And yeah. what, an, what an iconic company. I mean, Leo Burnett's one of the largest advertising networks in the region. It's yeah. 750 people. Okay. So to be offered this sort of executive role to help drive the overall digital agenda for the group was, yeah. was an incredible honor. And you know, I really enjoyed my time working with some wonderful people. You know, we won Agency of the Year at Dubai Links that year. We won a lot of creative accolades. We won some great accounts. I got to travel all over the region, work with some incredibly talented and creative people. Well, let's talk for a second about that. Mm. Um, so during your time as Chief Innovation Officer for Leo Burnett, what were some of the, the things that you did that you're most proud of in terms of like creatively, like uh, different campaigns or different, how did, you imp how did you make them more digitally nimble and savvy and so on? Um, a big part of what I needed to do was education. Mm -hmm. And because what I realized was that you know, for a lot of people, you know, even the ABCs of digital and social marketing weren't understood. And so we put on a lot of training and a lot of development where we actually had full-on two-day workshops and seminars to upskill our staff, to upskill the teams, to create opportunities for them to really learn, to see what good looks like. Mm -hmm. There was a whole <clears throat> interactive phase on the second day where they actually were given live briefs to go away and work on them. And a lot of the ideas that were presented as outputs of that of that session actually went on to become real client work that actually okay. was, was very well received. Um, I implemented a really fun, just like a culture of curiosity, I'd like to say, where we had a lot of speakers come in from Twitter, from Facebook, from Google. You know, we set up a small innovation lab with some tools, some, you know, drones and things like that to try to get people to be a lot more aware. You know, setting up Holler, which was the kind of integrated social and mobile unit, which Nick Lewis right. was a part of, right. was great. You, you know, bringing in about during our interview, you talked about <coughs> some really cool work that they did. Yeah. yeah, and we did some amazing work. I think for me, probably the the piece that I was proudest of during that time was some great work we did for Ramadan for Do in 2013, 2014, excuse me, where we created a campaign to encourage people to actually turn their phones off okay. during iftar time. You know, we kind of came out with this insight that. You know, these mobile phones are great at, at bringing us together as people, especially in a country where 85% of us aren't from here. So the role that these phones have to play for us to connect us to people who are far away is very powerful. But the closer you physically get to somebody, sure. the more the phone seems to get in the way. Have you seen the TED Talk? There's a book as well called Alone Together. You might be familiar with this. I know of it, yes. Sherry Turkles. Yes. And a sociologist at MIT, and she has a whole theory about that, that exactly what you just said, that in fact... Uh, the more connected we become with the digital technology and with mobile phones and so on, mm. the more it pushes us away from each other. Yes. So it sounds like you kind of, um, you were implementing kind of a strategy around that. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And so yeah, it was a wonderful campaign. It was very well received, you know, and very, a, lot of, a lot of positive press from the UAE public as well in terms of saying, like, thank you for highlighting this, you know, how brave for a telecom company to ask people to turn off their phones right. when it's time to genuinely make, you know, time to connect with your family. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I was there um, until September of last year. And for me, September was the perfect time because I joined Flip in September 2005. And I said, you know what, 10 years is the perfect time to round this out. You know, I'd been in advertising for 20 years. I'd been between Flip and Leo for 10, and I was, I was tired. Mm -hmm. I was tired of agencies. Um, you know, I, I'd worked very hard. I literally felt like I'd torn strips off myself 
to try to make this thing come together. Um, you know, and I just didn't have any fight left in me. And, and you know, advertising is a fighting industry. You have to fight very hard and you have to be very passionate about what you do. And if you're not, you really have no business being in it. And I just got to the point where I was just so tired and so burnt out that I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I let them know, I gave them a few months notice, said, right, you know, I, I joined FLIP September 18, 2005. Mm -hmm. September 22, 2015, I'm, I'm, I'm calling time on my agency <laughs> career. Good round numbers. Uh, yeah, so it worked out perfectly. And, and what I did was, in the, in the lead up to that, I'd started having conversations with Wamda Capital. Um, they're a wonderful group of people led by Fadi Ghandour, who's really such an icon and such an inspiration for a lot of tech entrepreneurs in the region. Fadi is the, co is the founder of Aramex, the logistics company. Obviously, he's made a lot of money along the way, but he was one of the early investors in Maktoub as well, which was sold to Yahoo in 2009. And so he's somebody who really saw the potential of tech and the internet in the context of entrepreneurship to help create jobs and create wealth for the Middle East. And so he created WAMDA, the, the platform to support tech entrepreneurship, to inspire, guide, and connect Arab entrepreneurs in, through technology. Because you know, his belief is that you know, this thing called the internet doesn't see borders. It doesn't know religion. It doesn't know politics. It doesn't know our Arab bureaucracy. Right. And it's one of the few ways to genuinely create scalable opportunities for Arab youth in right. terms of employment and wealth. And he'd set up WAMDA Capital as a VC fund to invest in growth capital in MENA tech companies that were looking for growth. And so we started having a conversation to say, look, you know, I'm really passionate about what you do, Fadi, and really believe in what your mission. And I feel I'd have a lot to contribute given my experience of building a tech startup and the fact that you know, I'm very present, very visible in this industry. Maybe there's something we could do together. And so he very generously created a job for me within his team called Entrepreneur in Residence, where I would be used as a strategic advisor to his portfolio companies to another, be able to another great title, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, they just get better, don't they? <laughs> and so the idea there was that my time would then be divided among individual portfolio companies who needed a specific bit of help. Mm -hmm. so, so in September, I wrapped up at Lear Burnett. I took off. I spent two months traveling across America, probably the, the happiest two months of my life. It was um, Of all the places you chose to do travel in the U.S. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted to go somewhere for two months, and I knew I needed the time out. And I said, well, where can I go where I just won't get bored? and just be able to travel. And America, I mean, I love America. I mean, I've spent a lot of time there, you know, in university. Everybody speaks English. It's not an expensive place in general to be. It's Depends easy. Buy, it's a little cheaper. Yeah, and it's easy in terms of, you know, Airbnb, getting around. Yeah. Flights are relatively cheap, and yeah. it's a big country with a lot to do. Where did you go? You and two so, uh, so I, I started, uh, I flew to LA for the weekend, mm -hmm. and then, uh, which I'd never been to before. Um, and then from LA, I went on to Malibu. I spent a week in an ashram in, in Malibu, in California. Uh, you know, in a, in a in a ashram in the mountains overlooking overlooking the Pacific Ocean, which was incredible. Of, of course, I realized the the, the Don Draper irony. You know that, the, that's what I was just about to say. The more I talk to you, the more I didn't want to bring it up. But you remind, you're like the real life. You're like the Middle Eastern Don Draper. Just not as well dressed. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, your whole career path, and then even the ashram. I mean. Well, I I didn't because I hadn't seen the last few episodes of Mad Men, and then I'd made this plan, <laughs> and then I watched it. I went, oh my god. He's sitting in an ashram in California overlooking the sea. He independently arrived at that. Yeah, and I independently arrived at that. And so <laughs> it was a wonderful week because I spent a week, you know, hiking in the mountains, eating vegetarian food, no coffee, no soft drinks. I finally managed to quit my filthy smoking habit on the back of that week. 
and then from there I went back to LA. I made a wonderful friend, and so I kind of went back and spent another weekend with her, and then kind of drove up to Santa Barbara, and then up to Monterey, mm -hmm. then up to San Francisco, mm -hmm. and then from there I went to Portland, and from Portland I went to Chicago to meet up with some friends, and then from there I went back to LA, picked up my friend, went to Mexico for a few days, cool. and then went and spent two weeks between uh, Brooklyn and, and, and Amherst. Okay. And you know, I was I, I gave a talk at Harvard and met my newborn nephew. I saw, I and saw the, the, the Harvard talk, by the way, on YouTube. Yeah, that was a good. One. Thank you. Yeah, so it was wonderful. I mean, it's it's the best gift I've ever given myself in terms of really, really because you know you, we, all, we all go on holiday, mm -hmm. but when you go on holiday, you know you know it's, you know your inbox is filling up and you know what's waiting for you. But mm -hmm. there's nothing quite as liberating as literally, you know, kind of taking off 10 years of your life yeah. and really closing a chapter yeah. and knowing that you're coming back to something completely new with, with no limits, with incredible possibilities. Except you missed Madison, Wisconsin. You should have checked that out. Shucks, I did. <laughs> huh? Austin, Texas as well. Yeah. Well, I was supposed to go to Austin this year, but unfortunately I, cu I couldn't make it. Um, but you've uh, been there before for South by Southwest? No, I was actually invited to speak at South by Southwest this year, mm. which is like kind of life goals, right? Mm. And um, they accepted me to go give the Arabs Be Like talk. Okay. And I was all set to go, but unfortunately, my residence visa got delayed oh. in the renewal. So the, the week I should have traveled, my passport was stuck in immigration, and I wasn't able, able to travel for it, which was... Well, you hit many of the great cities anyway. Yes, I did. Um, so yes, yeah, so I came back and, and joined WAMDA. Mm -hmm. And I was working as an advisor to a company called Kharabish, which is a multi-channel network that creates a lot of you know, um, you know, con entertainment content. And, and then I started helping with Karim as well. So Kareem, you know, as as we were talking earlier, is kind of the, the yeah. ride-sharing app. Uh, sorry, the the, the car the car um, the car booking app. And before we get into Kareem, mm. I do want to talk about Kareem because you are the VP of marketing mm. there. But let's talk quickly about Karabish. Can mm. you tell us a, a bit more about that company? And yeah. What they do? Sure. Karabish is a wonderful company. Originally founded in Jordan, um, mm. but now with a very strong presence here in the UAE, and it's one of the few truly pan-Arab entertainment networks. So what they do is they have a, a, a constellation of channels, primarily on YouTube, around food, family, entertainment, gaming, um, beauty and fashion. And they work with uh, talent to promote themselves and advertise themselves. So they create either entertainment content or they create branded content. Um, wonderful group of people. And they were looking to find ways to get more in touch with the regional advertising industry. Um, so my role was really to try to help act as a door opener and enabler to help them position themselves as a company to be as attractive as possible to the brands and agencies that matter the most here. I see. And so that was where the majority of my time was spent when I first got back in November. And then at the same time, I started working with Karim, who just been, you know, had just received $60 million in growth capital. Mm. In where a, did they get that from? Um, it was a Series C investment that was led by uh, the private equity from Abraj Capital. Mm. Um, but there was a number of other investors, including Wamda Capital, which is how I made the connection to okay. them. And how, I, much did you, how much did Wamda give them? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. And so that's so I went in there and, and I just absolutely fell in love with Karim as a, as a company in terms of their mission, in terms of what they were doing, and just conceptually from a marketing point of view, the opportunity was was really too good too good to pass up. And so they very boldly went back to Wamda Capital and said, "We know you sent him here as an advisor, but can we keep him?" <laughs> and so they very generously offered me the role to be their VP of Marketing and Analytics, and and here we are. And Wanda didn't mind. No, not at all. They were, they were really well, good about they, like, it. Invested in Kareem anyway. They were, and that was their perspective: was that yeah. this is a very important investment for us. Right. We think Yusuf will be a great value add to Kareem, right. and we think it's the best thing Yusuf could do. So mm -hmm. they were very generous in, in spirit in terms mm -hmm. of letting me take that role on. And so now we get to your current 
gig, yes. which is that you're the VP of marketing for Kareem. Mm -hmm. And you've been there now for three months? Three months, yes. Okay, so what, what do you do there now? So I'm, I'm doing a lot at the moment. It's a very interesting organization mm -hmm. where, you know, Kareem was started three years ago by two entrepreneurs who were both McKinsey consultants. And mm -hmm. they both arrived at the same conclusion at the same time, which is that they needed to build a company that was meaningful and had scale in the Middle East. Uh, Magnus, one of the co-founders, had a brain hemorrhage and nearly died. Mm -hmm. And you know, in, in going through that process, sort of realized, like, what's all this worth? Like, why, why, why am I here? In, before 2012. Okay. And you know, he was a consultant at McKinsey, and he kind of realized, like, what am I doing with my life? Mm. And so when he, you know, he got better and you know, recovered, the first thing he did was he went and quit his job and decided, I have to do something meaningful with my life. Meanwhile, Mudassir, the other uh, initial co-founder, was also a McKinsey consultant traveling around the Middle East, wondering to himself, where are the great Arab institutions? Where the, the, where's the next generation of great Arab companies that will create wealth, that will create jobs, that will create employment opportunity, that will inspire the next generation of Arabs, that will create leaders? And so the two of them kind of realized, like, let's, let's build it together. And what's that going to be? Mm. And they looked at a whole bunch of things around education, around healthcare. Um, and even at one point said, let's build a fish farm because, you know, sustainable food sources are a problem in the Middle East. And then they happened upon transportation, uh, especially just good, effective ground transportation. You know, they as consultants traveled a lot around the Middle East and realized that the existing transportation infrastructure, you know, public transport is, is, a, is a broken system in most Arab cities, if it exists at all. Mm -hmm. The taxi options aren't particularly good. And so Kareem initially was created, you know, you, you know, as a play on words, really, with the word Kareem, which means generous, and the word, and the word car. And the idea was really just to be to gener generous to everybody around them. So we wanted to be generous to our customers by providing the best possible customer service and experience. We wanted to be generous to our captains, not drivers. You know, we call them captains because we feel that they deserve respect. And we wanted to kind of create, you know, to be generous to them in terms of helping them enrich and, you know, you know in, empower their lives. But also to make every employee of the company an owner of the company as well. Um, to make sure that all our colleagues also benefited from, from growth and from wealth in the region. And it's very rare to, be, to work for a company in the Middle East where everybody was a shareholder. Oh, I see. So, where have I heard that before? There's another company like that. Is it... Um Zappos, maybe. Maybe Zappos. I mean, a lot of people do, but just not a lot of people in the Middle East. Right. Um, the founders of Kareem are from where? Uh, Magnus is Swedish, and Mudassar is Pakistani. Okay. But they both lived and worked in the region for a while. And how long has Kareem been around then? Three years. Three years. And it's just under four years now. When Kareem came into existence, was were they aware of Uber? Were they concerned about Uber? They were. Their initial plan was not to build an app. Originally, the, the, the Kareem started as a corporate car booking service. So if you were you know, McKinsey and you were sending two consultants to Doha tomorrow, mm -hmm. they would make sure there was a driver at the airport to pick you up, to take you around, to bring you back, and whatever you needed. And so we spent about six months as a company working on transportation and fleet booking, but on a corporate scale, and then realized that there was huge potential to scale the business by building an app. Okay. And so we did. And you know, today, the growth is just phenomenal. You know, today, we have over 30,000 captains per month driving around our cities. Mm. We're in 26 cities around the Middle East, in 10 different, 27 cities, we're in 10 countries. Um, we're literally transporting millions of people every month. It's so quite Kareem incredible. Is, but it's only in the Middle East? Only in the Middle East, in what we call the, the wider MENA region. So yeah. we are everywhere from Morocco in the West to Pakistan in the East. Now I noticed, by the way, because I have the Entertainer app, mm. you may have it, um, yes. you probably know this. There's like a, now it suggests 
taking a Kareem. Yes. You used to say, you guys want, you want to take an Uber? Do you have the entertainer app? No. Okay. Basically, um, you know, you used to say, you're going to do this thing five to ten minutes in Uber. Yes. Now it says five to ten minutes in Kareem. Yes. Is that you? Not me personally, no. Um, but no, it's, it's a wonderful um, partnership, and it's something yeah. we're really excited about. I mean, we, we really like the people at The Entertainer. They're a very similar fit to us, you know, being a local startup, very passionate about their community. Yeah. I and love The Entertainer. It's, it's a wonderful company, and, you know, and, and Donna and James are good friends, and you know, a company I've admired for a long time, so I couldn't be happier about the fact that we're partnering with other great, iconic local but brands. How did that occur, that they, just cho they chose Kareem over Uber? I'm not really sure about the details of how that relationship came into being. Um, let's talk more about sort of uh, Kareem. So, um, what is the future of Kareem then, in your opinion, in the, in the region? Continue to expand, and what are, what are your plans around that? We're incredibly excited, incredibly optimistic about the future. I mean, we really believe that you know we we provide a service that's desperately in need in the region, and and so we see that there's huge amounts of growth. You know, people quite often say, "Oh, it's you versus Uber." It's like, well, but there's enough room for everybody. If you look at a city like Dubai. Based on our anecdotal evidence, less than 2% of all the taxi rides taken every day in the city are Karim or Uber. Mm. So you see the potential for growth is incredible. So you don't see it as a zero-sum game. You don't, because, you know, obviously that's the obvious thing to say is how, do you, how are you going to defeat Uber or mm -hmm. how are you going to, but you don't see it that way. You no. the market is big enough for both of us. We think the market's big enough for both of us. We think, you know, we like having them here in a way because we believe that they keep us on, on our toes, and I know we, we do the same for them. Mm. Um, you know, we have a, maybe a different ethos to them. We have different objectives as an organization, but, you know, and essentially offer a very similar service. Mm. And so, you know, for us, it just means that there's one other participant who can help educate people, raise awareness, and we believe that the market's big enough for both of us. And how is Kareem differentiated? What is the key differentiator between Kareem and Uber? So our mission is to simplify people's lives mm -hmm. while building an awesome organization that inspires. Mm -hmm. So you don't see the word transportation or car or logistics in that. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is to find ways to simplify people's lives. Today, the best possible application of that that we found is transport. And so we've put a lot of our emphasis and obviously our energy into that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we as, a, as an organization genuinely want to make our community a better place. We, we believe that our key advantage is that because we're from the region and by the region, for the region, we design a product that is uniquely suited to the region. So mm -hmm. for example, we accept cash payments. Mm -hmm. right. You know, if you can imagine <clears throat> what a logistical challenge it is to collect cash from thousands of independent contractors across 10 countries world, you know, in the region, it's incredible. Right. But you know, you as a consumer, all you see is just you push a button and you just pay somebody cash. <laughs> but you know, we had to provide the service because the reality is that the majority of people in our in our markets are are either a not comfortable with credit cards or b don't even have bank accounts. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at countries like Egypt and Pakistan, you know, the actual percentage of people who are unbanked is you know in the 80s or 90s mm -hmm. in terms of percentages. So these people have a need for safe, affordable transport. Mm -hmm. They just don't have a credit card. So how do you accommodate for that? Um, providing things like later bookings, for example, which is something quite rare. So, you know, if you need to be sure that you can get somewhere at a certain time. So, for example, if you're planning, you know, an evening out with friends, and you know you've got to be at dinner at eight o'clock, eight thirty, you can book a car in advance to pick you up at eight. If you've got to be at the airport at six in the morning, you don't want to be freaking out at five a.m. trying to figure out how to get a taxi so right. people can sleep better at night. Um, you know, our Kareem Kids offering is quite unique and quite popular. A lot of parents use it as a safe way to get their children home from school, where they'll actually either send a Kareem to school to pick up the children or send the housewife, the housekeeper in a Kareem mm -hmm. to go to school, pick up the children and bring them home. So it has solutions that are, in other words, 
custom designed for the region. In other words, they know they know their customer base. Very much. You know, more so than Dubai, which is more like, I'm sorry, not Dubai. Uber, which is exporting a service that was more or less invented in San Francisco, and then they try to kind of make it work everywhere else. Yes. Kareem is specifically plugged in to the users here. We, we believe so, yes, and you know, our, our customers hope so as well. We hope our customers think so too. Obviously, you're passionate about the company. Mm. I mean, that's, that's the impression. Yeah. Because when you were at Wanda, I think you fell in love with the company. Yeah. All right, so we talked earlier about um, how you've been kind of on the ground floor of many you know, major projects, mm -hmm. initiatives in Dubai, including Dubai Media City, Dubai Internet City. You talked about the Sheikh's vision for Dubai. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you, Yusuf, how would you describe the vision for Dubai? I think, from what I see, I think what, what Dubai's leadership is trying to do is to build the best city in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think they'll get there in a lot of ways. I mean, look, you cannot have the you'll never be able to have the cultural sophistication of London or Paris. I mean, it's, this is not a thousand-year-old city. But I think they're doing everything they can to build, to build everything you want in a city. You know, I mean, when, when Dubai Media City launched, I remember saying, I'm like, Dubai Media City works because Dubai works. Mm -hmm. Because it's a great place to live, it's a great place to work, it's a great place to have kids, it's a great place to be single, it's a great place with schools, it's a great place for your family to visit. It just does everything right. And I cannot think of one city in the world that has literally gotten every aspect of life as right as they have here. Sure. And their, their, their devotion to making this the best city in the world is incredible in terms of the constant innovation, the constant change, the can-do attitude. I mean, you know, I remember even 15 years ago hearing Sheikh Mohammed say, wow, what you see, this isn't even 10% of, of what I want to achieve. And, and you look now, you're like, God, he was right. Like, it isn't 10% because it's still growing and changing. And I think in a lot of ways, and quite sadly in some ways, I think Dubai and the UAE has been the beneficiary of a lot of the trouble in the Middle East. You know, this is the safe haven for a lot of us. You know, mm -hmm. for me, as somebody who's half Palestinian, half Lebanese, for my parents' generation, we all grew up in Kuwait because that was where everybody went to be able to earn an honest living and live safely and securely. Today, the UAE is probably the only country that really can, say, can lay that claim in the Middle East. And so, you know, all of us now aspire and dream of coming to the UAE and specifically coming to Dubai. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any reason why this won't continue to be a real shining light for the region, but in a lot of ways for the world. What's going to make it the best city in the world, though? Uh, just, to, just to follow up on that, like, uh, you talked about service-oriented things. Uh, we've talked about the technology. What do you think are kind of the things that need to happen? I think they just have to continue along this entrepreneurial streak that they have, you know, this, this can-do attitude, and not be afraid to disrupt or change things. And I think they have been very open to that. You know, mm -hmm. so you see them do things and try things, like, wow, that was amazing. You know, mm -hmm. I think the emphasis on making this the smartest city in the world, the emphasis mm -hmm. on technology, the emphasis mm -hmm. on, on the environment, on inclusiveness. I think, every, I think they're just doing everything right. And to really kind of build a, a, you know, a cradle-to-grave support system where every aspect of your life is just enriched and made better, by the fact that you live in this city. I think they're doing that. You know, the, the, the beaches get nicer, the cultural events get better, the sporting facilities get better, um, the nightlife gets better, the, the, the dining options get better, but ultimately it's not for them to do everything for us. The reality is what they have to do is to build a platform that everybody can build on. And I think we have. You know, I think if you look at, you know, anybody who's built a successful company here, it's because Dubai has provided the platform to build a great restaurant or a great company or a great hotel or a great university like this one you know we if we are successful it's because there's a platform that we're allowed to plug into and to build on top of I think that's what they have to continue to do like they have with Media City, Internet City, Jabal Ali Free Zone, Design District and 
anything else they might create.